Welcome to the I Hate Everyone podcast, the only what? Podcast run by a 24-year-old black magician from Wisconsin. What a combination, the only what? Only podcast run by a 24-year-old black magician from Wisconsin. What a combination. Featured by the New York Times, Complex, ABC, NBC, Fox. And there's something else, but I forget. I always forget, but that's okay because today I have I have something I wanted to merge together, right? I really want to talk about Hamilton, but I really want to talk about how I am doing on this Netflix deal, if it's happening. And I want to tell you guys how, because I have been trying to do this for years, surprisingly. This is something that's new, but I've been trying to do for years, and I'll explain that in a little bit. But I realized there's, when I was looking it up, there's not a lot of people telling you how to get in the room where it happens, which is a Hamilton reference, weaving that shit in. How do you get in the room where it happens to even talk to Netflix as a whole, talk to MTV, talk to BET, talk to USA, talk to TNT, which were the meetings that I've been taking. So I'm gonna tell you how I got in the door and how I, as a 24-year-old black magician, got into pitch to all of these people the execs and then how that's going and where or when this show is going to take place so i decided i'm going to try to talk about both i'm going to try because the important thing is getting in the room where it happens how do you get in the room that's a hamilton reference so we're going to talk about it so hamilton did you like it texted this person i said did you like hamilton they said Lin-Manuel needs to stop putting himself in shit because he's not making it better. I agree. I When he comes out and he's like, I'm Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton. And then he doesn't ever say that. That's not a line. I don't know why I said that. Wait, what would he say? He's like, I don't know. I, don't, I, can't, I can't quote him now. I'm under pressure. But when he comes out and when he's playing like a 15-year-old boy, I'm like, bro, you're like so old. Could you not like shave the fucking goatee or something? Like, could you do something? So... Hamilton, uh, it was great. Uh, is it worth the hype? I, I suppose, if you've never seen any type of musical theater before, is it as good as this other show, In the Heights? I love In the Heights, and then we get a movie about it, and I think that In the Heights is going to be way better, so like, I hope you guys like strap the fuck in for that shit. And then, what is my favorite thing about Hamilton? <laughs> I just, I'm just cutting, cutting straight to the chase. What's my favorite thing about Hamilton? Well, my favorite thing about Hamilton is the idea of... The, the I guess the thing in the story where he talks about legacy because I've been obsessed with legacy ever since I've heard this show and it's the idea that you don't get to control the things that like you know in the story he direct uh, directly quotes you don't get to control who lives who dies who tells your story you know your your legacy will always be in the hands of other people and at the end uh, this is something I never really realized till I watched it and listened to it. At the end, his wife says she's talking to her husband in like heaven, essentially. She's talking to uh, Hamilton in heaven, and she says, "Can I show you what I'm proudest of?" And they're like, "The orphanage." And she's like, "I established the first private orphanage in New York City." And she's talking about how she established the first orphanage because she lived 50 more years than Hamilton, and all he wanted was more time more time more time more time and that's all she seemed to get when he died when they were in their 40s she just was like blessed by god is what she's saying with more time 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 50 more years and she's able to establish an orphanage because her husband was an orphan and she's saying will they tell my story you know will will that be enough for, for them to tell the story of a woman and 
And that's what people theorize that the gasp at the end of the show is when she looks out at the audience and goes, ah! and starts crying. And she, he, they think that Lin-Manuel, who grabs her hand, who's supposed to be Hamilton, they think that he comes out of character for a second, grabs her hand, brings her to the stage as Lin-Manuel Miranda. She sees everyone's telling her story, and she gasps, but no one really knows what it is. So, so that's the, essentially the, the beautiful thing about the show is that it's this, this idea of legacy that I talked about in the last show that comes from the Greek proverb that a society grows great when old man old men plant seeds that uh, whose shade they never get to sit in, something like that. Where Hamilton goes, legacy, what is a legacy? It's planting seeds in a garden that you never get to see. It's it's That's the beauty of it. And the other beautiful thing is... My favorite thing is George Washington's speech. So George Washington uh, has this song one last time with Lin-Manuel where they talk about uh, how he's stepping down and not running for president a third term. And what's important about this is fact check me if I'm wrong. Please send me a DM on Instagram at RJTheMagicCan. If you hear any mistakes, I'm not really sure about this one, but I don't feel like looking it up. I'm in my bed. But I think George Washington set the precedent of stepping down after two terms, but didn't make it a law. So then, like, towards the middle of, like, the 46 presidents that or 45 presidents that we've had, um, towards the middle, someone tried to run three terms. And then after he lost, they're like, yeah, we're not doing that shit anymore. So I, I think that's what happened. But there's no official law that said that you couldn't run for president three terms in a row. So that's the interesting thing about uh, about this. So he could have run for president for the rest of his life, and he probably would have won for the rest of his life. And Hamilton, actually, uh, one thing that a lot of people don't know is he was pro-monarch, like monarch, not monarchy, but they thought he was like a monarchist, which they note in the play, because uh, he thought president forever might not be like a bad idea. So And probably one of the weirdest things I'm ever going to say about the podcast is that George Washington's character really embodies what I want this podcast to be. As you guys know, I'm always talking about the things I'm always talking about, always fucking talking about, besides my friend Jonah. Shout out Jonah. The things I'm always talking about are perspective. The things I'm always talking about is being able to like look at a situation objectively and be able to say, like, what should I do? And then be able to make, like, the decision that's right for you, not not just because it's it's your life. You know, that's what I, I try to do. Recently have been doing, I would say. So it's all about perspective. It's all about seeing the whole situation. It's all about being able to look at something that everyone might like and be able to be like, I don't like that, and this is why. And being able to construct an argument and be able to do all these things is kind of what George Washington represents. So... Um, especially when we talk about looking at yourself and trying to analyze what you say and what you do. And you, you've heard me apologize for things that I was almost going to say that I deleted, that I could have just edited out of the podcast. You've heard me like literally say, like say, I'm not, I'm not going to repeat what I said, but anyway, moving on. So, uh, Washington in his speech, which is a real, his will, a real farewell speech is like there's excerpts of it in this speech in Hamilton. But he says, though in reviewing the incidents of my administration, I am unconscious of any intentional error. I am nevertheless too sensible in my defects not to think it probable that I may have committed many errors. So this is like one of my favorite sentences in the whole thing, because it's what he's saying is when looking at his presidency, he never did anything on purpose that was wrong. However, he's saying he's too sensible in his defects. He knows himself. He knows being human too well. Not to think it probable that I may have committed many errors. Not to think that he may have done at least something wrong. A lot wrong, probably. 
in the hope that my country will view them with indulgence, and after 45 years of my life dedicated to its service with an upright zeal, the faults of incompetent abilities will be consigned to oblivion, as I myself shall soon, shall soon be, oh my gosh, shall soon be, to the mansions of rest. So this is the second best thing in the fucking musical, is, is that he says, his, the faults of incompetent abilities will be consigned to oblivion. He's saying that, like, the things that he did that were incompetent, the things that he did that weren't enough, the things that he thought were good enough that aren't, will one day die like him. So just like the Constitution is updated with amendments, just like just like the presidents move on, he's saying that one day the things that he did that will have negative consequences for the world will die just like him to the mansions of rest. I don't know what the fuck that means. So when you watch it, I want you to watch George Washington's speech one more time and see what he's really saying, saying that 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 he has to move on so that he says like Hamilton's saying like you can run a third term and he's like no the nation needs to move on they'll outlive me when I'm gone they'll outlive me when I'm gone is what he says and that that idea that he, that he set this grace this grace for just just staying long enough to change a little bit and then moving on giving someone else a try and then and then just making knowing that the things he did will one day die just like he he is is the idea that america isn't really on yet we're not really on this wave like we're like 40 percent on this wave that old things are supposed to die like the second amendment uh like fucking guns like people don't need to have guns to protect themselves from fucking droids and atomic bombs now like things need to die off you know what i mean like things slavery died off you know like things die off and and one day like that's why i said in the last few podcasts that history skews liberal that these that these things that we have now are gonna fucking this is i don't think this is a funny podcast like usually they're a little bit funnier but this is just like an analysis a little bit oh my gosh this, this is serious this is serious i'm smoking some new weed it's called garlic cookies um if quick plug i want to try and get sponsored by these people right so this is linkedin for weed and it's called leafdin not leak linkedin leafdin it's linkedin for weed they recently changed their name to leafed out and it's a network of consumers and vendors of marijuana in the area and you can literally go, my friend in Minnesota has tried it, and it worked. It was a little expensive. My friend in North Carolina or South Carolina, sorry, I forget where the fuck you are, he tried it. It worked for him. Uh, it's worked for me in, in New York. So it's like, and it worked for my friend in Brooklyn. So it's this LinkedIn network where you can meet a vendor and like send them a message. They have ratings and they have their menus up and you can like see all this shit. And then you can buy the weave just by like texting them when they send you their number. And my guy comes and waits outside of my work or outside of my fucking like building. And he'll turn on his flashers and tech come early and like wait 10 minutes give me change and has it in like an envelope in a sealed package and he has that menu before so this time i looked at garlic cookies and it was like great weed for creativity smells like it smells like fucking garlic yo it's gross it smells like garlic and cookies and i was like oh, i can't really smell like garlic that much it smells like garlic that much it's a lot it is a lot so yes linkedin use my promo code. <laughs> i don't have a promo code what the fuck oh yeah but i just needed to tell you guys that so that's how i feel about hamilton 
the nation learns to move on. And uh, yeah. So the room where it happens, one of the best songs in Hamilton, Leslie Odom Jr. talks about wanting to be in the room where it happens to hear the conversation where Hamilton got the capital moved and then like wanted to, the, the banks and whatnot put in New York City. And you might say like, well, what does that have to do with Netflix? Well, a lot of people want to get in the door with Netflix. But if you're like me, you discovered that Netflix has a policy where they don't take unsolicited sub of submissions, which means they don't take submissions from normal people. No matter how good your movie is, no matter where you've been, you have to have a pre-established relationship with Netflix. So how did I, a 24-year-old black magician from Wisconsin with no like degree in film, a communication degree, get in the door with Netflix and a bunch of other people? Well, it's a long story, so you better strap the fuck in. It's going to be a long podcast, and it all starts with me in college where I realized that I had a bunch of goals and I wanted to, to pursue my goals but I didn't want to be one of those people that's like ah, goals you know like I wanted to like actually do it so I made a bunch of real goals that I could hit and I, one after the other so the first goal was I wanted to give a TED talk no no the first goal is I wanted to get to New York so I joined Model UN, which did a trip to New York because I just wanted to see New York. After that, I saw a flyer for a performing arts camp in New York, and then I decided to sign up. Then I got to New York that way instead, fucking fucked Model UN. Then after New York, I wanted to uh, give a TED Talk. So I, so I started my own TED organization at my school so that I could be able to give a TED Talk at my own fucking TED Talk. That's what I started to do. And through that, I met another TED organization that uh, the the head guy, I was like, you should do a magic TED talk. He's like, what's that? I'm like, I'll show you. Gave the TED talk there. So I wanted to give a TED talk. After the TED talk, I was like, I want to go to Asia. I want to go to Japan. Went to China instead, but that was close enough. And after China, I'm like, I'm moving to New York. And I wanted to move to New York. And when I got to New York, I'm like, I want to take over New York. So... When I said I want to take over New York, I'm like, I don't know what that means. If I know I have to get in the New York Times, which is why I took this job at the Houdini Museum, because it would amplify my story the best, which is what I knew. Because you guys know I'm a press guy you, and you guys know I'm from the same town as Harry Houdini. So if I'm from the same town as Houdini, moved to New York where Houdini moved and became the director of the Houdini Museum, that's a story worth the New York Times. Now. You might say, how do you get in the New York Times? Well, the New York Times I got in because I had been planning this for years because this was a goal in my plan chart. I literally like had a chart with steps. This was a goal in my chart. I knew I had to get in the Times, but I knew I couldn't just move to New York and get in the Times. That's not how it works, East, like usually. So I at least made it look like that. So, so what I did is three years earlier or two years earlier, I had started to look up reporters in the Times that write about magic it's because I knew that if they wrote about magic before when I moved to New York and a few years from then they'd be more willing to write about magic later because it had been a while since they wrote about it. And I found a reporter that wrote about a three course dinner magic show that I based my three course dinner magic show that I was doing in college. So in college, you should set up like three course dinner magic shows and like have tickets. I would make like thousands of dollars like when I would do it, but I would only do it like once a month. But it was really great. And I got the idea from the show in New York. So I saw the guy that wrote about the original story. And I'm like, this is my guy. His name was Corey Kilgannon. And I'm like, this is the guy. He wrote about this uh, this magic thing a long time ago. He's He'd be willing to write about my thing. So I sent him a message, and I was like, yo, I'm a college student, and I'm a publicist. I do PR for a lot of magicians, which I was doing freelance in college, just meeting magicians and asking them if I could like send their stories to newspapers. And I was like, uh, can I 
do you mind if I send you stories periodically? And if one works with the New York thing, maybe it can get published in the Times. And he was actually like, sure. So I would send him stories of my friends, like in Philadelphia, that I do like uh, that I do PR for. And uh, he was like, no, nope, Philadelphia is too far. I'll send him this story. Nope, that doesn't work. Then one day, my friend was like, I'm gonna have a bachelor party. This was two years before I moved to New York. And he goes, I'm gonna have a bachelor party, and I'm like okay, he's going to have a bachelor party. We're planning the bachelor party. And I'm like, what would be a great present? I'm like, if I can get Eric in the New York Times, that would get me a relationship with the New York Times, with the reporter. Yet at the same time, that would be an awesome present for a magician to get a story featured in the Times with his name and his picture. So I decided that I would plan an event that would be worthy of the Times. So what would be worthy of the Times? I looked at my group and I said, we're all magicians. We're all magicians. So I'm going to make a scavenger hunt an ultimate game with magicians a, a, a code that only magicians could crack because it's six magicians and one non-magician so the one non-magician would make a lot of funny jokes you know like that would be a really funny angle to the story so i wrote up this press release about how uh these magicians were, were making this ultimate puzzle and i called this company and said if we can get in the times would you do it for free and they were like yeah we'll do it for free so like i had it all arranged and then the guy was like it sounds great I think we could do this. I might be on vacation that week. The week comes and he's on vacation. So I don't get in the times. And yeah, but he knew that I could write a story and he knew that I was interesting and he knew that I was a magician. So we established this. So when I moved to New York, I got to be the director of the Houdini Museum uh, three years later, two years later. I sent him that story and I said, guy moves from New York in the footsteps of Houdini. He's young and he's black and he's the new Houdini. Maybe like not really, but still you get the idea they, he said, I like the story. They said, I can do it. So that's what they did. So they came to the museum on Halloween. And this is, this is another step. I knew that I was going to need to make an event. They couldn't just come to the museum. It wouldn't be exciting enough. I had to fabricate an event. So what I had to do was I had to go and say we're doing a seance on Halloween, trying to contact the spirit of Houdini. Houdini died on Halloween, so it's a, uh, it's a great time to do a seance. So I did that and, and invited everyone, put flyers out, uh, put it on Instagram. 1.25 p.m., one minute before Houdini died, no one's there. No one's there. The Times is there. It's super fucking embarrassing. I'm shitting my pants. I'm like, I can't believe I invited him here and nothing's going to happen. 1.26 p.m. comes. Houdini died at 1.26 p.m. Up on the elevator, ding, comes a group of school children, black school children, which are my bread and butter because I was a black school child like five years ago. They come in and 30 of them. And I'm like, you're just in time for the seance. You're like, what seance? And I was like, the seance, we're contacting the spirit of Houdini on Halloween. And they're like, oh, hell no. And I was like, oh, hell yes. Sit the fuck down. So they all like sat down. And then we said, Houdini, are you here? We turn off the lights. We lock the doors. Houdini, are you here? Nothing. Right. Nothing happened. And I had a pair of handcuffs, Houdini's handcuffs that I put on the table. And then um, we locked them, right? We turned on the lights. The handcuffs were unlocked. What happened? Was it a magic trick? Was it me? Was it the handcuffs? You'll never know. <laughs> but the crazy thing is, at 1.26 p.m., the door was locked, right? 1.27 p.m., we turned on the lights. A white butterfly comes out of the corner and just lands perfectly on a picture of Harry Houdini. I kid you not, it is in the New York Times. Look up RJ the Magician, New York Times. It is a white butterfly. We were on the fourth floor of a building in Manhattan 
With the doors locked and the lights off, I've never seen a butterfly indoors in my life. The white butterfly came and landed perfectly on the picture of Harry Houdini. Then the butterfly came over to me and landed perfectly on my finger and just sat there and they got a picture of it for the New York Times. And that that was amazing. Incre- a white butterfly representing like the spirit of Houdini, maybe. I don't know. But that whole story made it in the Times and they put it there. Now you might say, why does this matter? It matters because I didn't tell you one conversation that I've had with a friend where I was walking down the street and I was just inspired one day by my film class. And I said, you know what? One day I think I'm going to direct a movie. And I was like, that's a goal. How do I move towards this goal? Now, (laughs) this is getting so complicated. There's one more sub goal that I didn't tell you about. And this goal was I've always wanted to be the person that curates magic. So if you don't know, there's a lot of magic jobs out there. There's uh, like jobs to be illusion designers on Broadway where you're the person who designs magic tricks for people on Broadway. There's people, uh, people who consult magic for America's Got Talent and all the magic TV shows. Um, there's all kinds of things like that. And I've always wanted to be the person that curates magic for Netflix because there's an interesting thing on Netflix that there's a lot of comedians, right? Comedians perform on what's called a circuit. And a circuit is a circle of, of schools or event places that hire people every year. And it's like the circle that they travel on their tours. Now, a lot of comedians travel on the exact same tours as hypnotists, magicians, mentalists, and also like the singers that come to your college. Like if you ever have a college event and you have a big name comedian come and then you have a magician, it's because they have the same agency. So these people are getting paid like the same amount of money to do the same shows at the same venues. So I'm like, Netflix is one day going to look and say, hey, Chris D'Elia, bad example, shouldn't have used him, but you get the idea. Chris D'Elia is really good friends with this magician because they're in the same agency. This magician is pretty well known, even though he's not famous, pretty well known. Maybe someone from America's Got Talent, maybe like Shin Lim. If you know America's Got Talent, Shin Lim is pretty famous. We could get this magician to do a show on Netflix. We just put it on like a stage show on Netflix. And then we could just have that be like like the comedy show. It'll attract people who like magic, a, wholly, a totally different demographic. Especially if we get funny comedians or magicians. So like the amazing Jonathan, you know. So I'm thinking one day they're going to realize this. It's just going to like, because they're going to look around and see that they're missing something. And they need something that everyone doesn't have. And I'm like, this is something that Netflix is going to want. Or at least maybe I can convince them of that. So I'm like, how do I... If I move to New York, that's my dream job. Get this. How do I get this job? I'm like, well, I have to show them that it would work. So I'm like, what? who do I have that I could film a special with? Like a Comedy Central style stage show special with that would be funny and cool. And my friend Chris, who's the hypnotist that I talk about, he has the most views on America's Got Talent ever. He hypnotized Howie Mandel, who's a germaphobe, who wrote a book about being a germaphobe, to shake his hand on stage. It has like 50 million views on YouTube. Um, he shook his hand and how he had to go to therapy for like months afterward because he like he was convinced Chris was wearing gloves. Chris was not wearing gloves. He hit, it was amazing. He hypnotized him. It was great. So I'm like, if I could get Chris's stage show who came to my college on tape and then send it to Netflix and be like, hey, this is this is like a project I'm working on. I'm producing this. Would you guys like to to buy this? Then they'll buy it. Well. I had all my ducks in a row, had theaters lined up, had the shows taped, and then um, 
Netflix doesn't take unsolicited submissions. I looked it up. They just don't. Looked it up. Read it. Everything. You can look it up on. Like, I'm really good at finding information I need to find. And no, they do not take unsolicited submissions. So I've always had that in the back of my mind. If I ever meet someone, like, that'll be, like, something I pitch to them. So, like, I thought about who do I know in the TV industry. I remember, this is so weird. When I was 12, my mom was sending me um, to visit my dad. And I was on a company minor on a plane, which means they give someone like an escort to take you on and off the plane. And for this one ride, for some reason, they're like, hey, we don't have any more escorts. And this couple came up and they're like, oh, we'll do it. And my mom was like, OK, that sounds great. And I'm like, mom, you do not know this white woman and this black guy. But like I flew with them, like next to them on the plane to California. And there were TV uh, people. And one of them was a producer in filming. And one of them was like this sports agent and he was filming her for this TV show because she was like an age, like a really cool girl boss agent. You know what I mean? So like she was uh, doing this and I like was talking to him and I remembered the guy's name. His name was Havis Streeter. You guys can go add him on LinkedIn or something. I remembered his name because it was so weird my whole life. So I added him on LinkedIn and I was like, hey, man, you're still doing TV stuff. No, not really. I'm like, OK, dead end. So I thought about all the TV people I know, like never really anything. One day, someone comes into the museum. They're like, I'm talking to him, telling him my story. Basically, 24-year-old black magician from Wisconsin, all this shit. I'm working at the Houdini Museum as the director. That's what I did when I got to New York. That's how I got hired, as you guys know. Comes into the museum. Telling him about my life. And he goes, you know what? You'd be perfect for our TV show. And I'm like, what TV show? And he's like, we're making a TV show about a young guy that goes to Vegas and we see if he can make it and we see if he makes it and we're looking for a star. We had another guy, you dropped out, but you're just telling me about your life. You're so interesting and you just have something about you. And I'm like, okay, that sounds cool. Uh, you can hit, hit, hit me up, I guess. So yeah, that's the, that's the story. Just kidding. That's not the story. We still have a lot of minutes left. I'm very sorry. He told me that, right? Fast forward back to Halloween. The New York Times says that was amazing. I did a trick for a guy. It was great. I do a little Michael Jackson move. It's, it's really hard to explain, not in honor of Michael Jackson, but it, you have to see it to believe. You know, read the article. And I did all, all this magic. It was blah, 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 blah. It was great. Then the article comes out literally like two months later. I think it comes out like on Black Friday, which in retrospect was great because everyone was reading that paper, but it just came out so long. Like it was, I remember I was at the museum and I was there because I was working and it was so late. This is why I quit. I was there maybe at like 10 PM and I got a text. You're in the times. Enjoy it from my boss. Who's an asshole, but he <laughs> texted me that. And I ran out the door. I ran out and grabbed six papers and came in and was just reading it. And it was just a glowing review of me, a glowing review of my performance that I did, a glowing review of the seance. It had a picture of me in like my turtleneck next to Houdini. And I just looked amazing because this photographer was amazing for Refinery29. And you might be like, how does this relate to Netflix? It relates to Netflix because literally within a week I had gotten so many calls and you it's important if this happens to you this is why I'm a PR guy because I got in my first newspaper as a kid not as a kid when I was like 19 and that sold my first show you know I had 40 seats it got in the paper it sold all the tickets and that's when I realized the power of the press because it's free if you have a good story to get in the New York Times it's free 
but to get in the New York Times as an ad, it's like $50,000. I don't know how much it actually costs, but it's a lot of fucking money. So, like, if you can get in a newspaper for free or tell your story because you have a good story, tell it. But I got so many calls from people. I got people trying to get my autograph, like sending me like the paper and like sending it back. Like, please send it back. Here's a stamp. I had people like calling me like friends. But best of all, I had people calling me from TV, which I never really wanted to do. I've always thought it would be cool to direct a movie, which is like a goal that I said, like, how can I get to? And I'm like, maybe if I start go like at Netflix, you know, maybe that'll get me up the ranks, you know. So that's why I was kind of like thinking about that. But that was always on the back burner. But it was always there. I always had writings about it. And I always had it, like, prepped. Prepped and ready. And I always had the package ready. Also, I always, I had been starting to write a sitcom. And this was, like, a very loose idea. But I have a, a lot of pages written about a sitcom about, like, my life. Not, like, because I think I'm that interesting. But I've always loved the story of Everybody Hates Chris. And all people, like, when I was a kid, everyone used to tell me I looked like him. So I had, like, this whole, like, uh... I had this whole story about this, like, everybody hates Chris style growing up show about my life because everyone just hated me when I was growing up (laughs) about this kid who was doing magic tricks and his parents are super religious and he has to hide it from them. And he's also black. So So I started writing this show and it actually has the same exact name as the current show I'm working on uh, pitching right now. So that's like I've always kind of thought about it and writing scripts. I have a few scripts started and because I was like, what if I meet the head writer of SNL? And they're like, hey, like do you have any scripts written? And I'm like, oh yeah, here's a script right here. So I have a few, I have a little bit of everything just locked and ready to go. So that's why um, when I started getting the calls from the TV companies, they were like, we saw you in the Times. We love your story. We think you have a look. You'd be great for a TV show. They all said, do you have any ideas? And this is when, if you're not prepared, you'll miss your moment because I had a ton of ideas. I have a ton of ideas. So I got a call from a company that made the Hulu Fire Festival documentary. So that was the hottest documentary of the year, award winning. Uh, the one about that whole island that was fake and that kid who went to jail, the better documentary, not the Netflix one, but the Hulu Fire Festival documentary one. I met with them in Brooklyn. I went to their office. Super weird. Um, I went. Uh, I met with Nancy Glass, uh, who's the super famous news personality. Uh, I I met with her production company. Uh, there was like five of them that contacted me. And a funny thing is they they hit up my work email. For one of them did six. So I guess that's six. But one of them did, and my boss was intercepted it and was like, "What? What are you gonna do for the museum? What are you gonna do for me? What is this? Is this about Houdini? We'd love to do something about Houdini." And he just ruined it. They never replied again. So I was like, "Yeah, you're not gonna ruin this shit for me." So, <laughs> so I kept it under wraps. I kept it really low key. I knew if I told him, he'd fuck it up and he'd try to take a percentage or something. So I kept it low key, and I waited. And that's when I got a call. So I, got, I, I, this is this is the point where I'm at a, a production company phase. So what this means is Netflix does not take unsolicited submissions. They only take submissions from agents and production companies and people they previously established relationships with. This a production company could be two of those three things because they're a place that has made a show. And Netflix potentially bought it, so they have that pre-established relationship, but they're also a production company, which means they make uh, video reels of potential TV shows, and they go around selling it to TV companies or to, like, you know, like Netflix TV uh, services, I guess, like um, Netflix and stuff like that, or Hulu. So that's kind of uh, what they what what they do uh, as production companies. So I got these calls. I was super excited. <clears throat> and then I got a call 
from the man. I'm going to call him the man because I don't want to say his name. Now, the man called me and the man almost fucked everything up. The man called me on the phone and goes, hey, I'm the man. I saw your article in the New York Times and I had to call you. I hopped off the plane, grabbed my sister's phone and called you up. This isn't even my phone. I'll text you my number. This isn't even my phone. Kid, you have something. You have something. My name is The Man, and I represent these big-name magicians. These two magicians are by far the most famous magicians in the world. That's what I'll say. I won't say who they are. That's just what I'll say. These magicians are by far the most famous magicians in the world. You probably know them even if you're not a magician listening to this. The Man said, I think you have it. I think you have, I'm not talking about this whole black magician shit. I'm talking about you as a personality. I think you have it. You have what it takes. You're going to be a star. You have the look. You have the story. You have the style. You have the magic. And you're funny as fuck, kid. You don't remember this. You don't, this is him talking. You don't remember this, but I met you years ago. You, I was with uh, Ben Stiller at the summer camp that you taught at when you were teaching his kid. I was there and I met you and you're like, I'm RJ and you're funny then and you're funny now. He said all this and I just wanted to introduce myself, work with you in any capacity and if you have any ideas for TV, if you, want, if you have any ideas for anything, I've been reading your story, I've been following you for a while, but now it's the time. You're in the big leagues, kid. You're in the big leagues and you're going to have ups and downs from here. This is just an article. Don't let it go to your head. But it's you're going to have ups and downs from here. This is the ride. Enjoy it. This is all he said. This is all he said. Like, and he's telling me, you know, he's like, I'm the manager of these big name magicians. And then he he drops, I'm the also managed Shin Lim, Piff the Magic Dragon. Like, these are names. Like, Piff the Magic Dragon sounds lame. Huge magician making millions. Like, he's like not naming like big names. So, like, I'm like, shit. I call my mom. I call everyone. I'm like, Shit, and he go, I, like he starts calling me every day. Every day he's calling me. Every day, yo, I'm just checking in, just checking in, and I'm telling him that I'm getting these messages from these uh, companies, these companies that want to meet with me to produce my magic show, a magic TV show. He goes, don't sign fucking shit until you send it to me. Tell them I'm your manager. Tell them the man is your manager. They'll know when you tell them the man, the man, the man, because he had three names. The man, the man, the man. When you tell them that. They'll know and they'll shit their pants because they'll look me up and they'll see what I've done because I have credits on this show and this show and this show. So I start taking these meetings and I say, I have to run it past my manager. His name is the man. And they go, oh, shit, really? We looked him up. Oh, the man sounds serious, you know, like taking meetings, taking meetings. And uh, he's like, take the meetings, but don't sign shit. So I take all the meetings and they're all like, do you have any ideas? And I tell them I have the idea for a show about this. And they all fucking love it. They all go nuts. Like, I can't tell you what the idea is because it's so good. But it's an idea that I have been writing about for years. It's very uh, it's very unique to me. And it's something that I would write about this and send it out into newspapers. And it would get published in newspapers. And my friends would be like, why are you writing about that? Or for, like, school projects, it would be about this. And I'd be like, it's because I think it's cool. And I, I want to get my name out there as one of the experts on this. So I would write articles about it so that people would publish it online. So if anyone ever Googled this for a movie, which I think a movie is coming about this, whatever this is, a movie is coming about this very soon, I think. When people Google experts on it, my name will come up. So that's, I was setting myself up for that in the future. So 
that helps because when I tell people I'm an expert on this, let's I want to do the show on this, they're like, well, that sounds amazing. And I had like a bunch of stories about it that I would pitch and they just thought it was hilarious. And uh, every single company was like, we want it. We're sending you a contract and we want to lock you in for a year with a, uh, with like a, an agreement where you can't like work with any other production companies. This is like your, our idea now. And that's what you essentially do. Right. So um, this is this is what they all what they all sent me. And these are the people that can talk to Netflix. So this is if I can get into Netflix, I can maybe pitch them more ideas in the future, become that magic guy. But at the same time, I never wanted a TV show. So originally I said, no, I said, no, I don't want to do a TV show. If anything, I want to produce one, make it about somebody else. But then people, everyone, all my friends were like, why would you do that? Don't you want to be the leading guy? And I was like, not really. But then I was thinking people wait their whole lives. Like I've been watching videos about this, like trying to get on Netflix somehow. Maybe not. This isn't the exact way I wanted to, but people say it takes 46 years to pitch to Netflix to get there. And I just stumbled across the opportunity to potentially get there so I'm like I have to take this so so I uh was getting all these meetings right the guys wants to be my manager um I'm telling him like I might take this uh with uh, another company and he goes no he goes you I have a production company sign with my company and he's like send me a full list of your ideas all of your ideas send them to me and I'm like I'm not going to send you all of my ideas that I've ever had for a tv show in a full package and you're not going to give me like a contract. I need a contract. What's your website? My website's down. Give me your contract. Uh, I don't have a contract. At this point, you might be like, that might not be the guy who represents the man. Like the man might not be the guy that represents all these people. He was the guy. I promise you he was the guy. I knew he was the guy. I had pictures of him. I had his like IMDB page. I had like all his credits, his Wikipedia page. He was real. His number of checked out. It just for some reason, he was just being sketchy. So he goes, listen, even if you don't let me produce your magic show, I still want to be your manager, get you on a fucking tour, arrange your shows and shit. I still want to do that for you, even if you don't pick me, but I really want you to pick me. One day he just vanishes. And he goes, oh, sorry, this big name magician had this really big problem. I had to go somewhere out of the country to fix it. I'm like, okay, cool. Disappears again. Sorry, someone in my family died. I'm like, okay, I understand that. Disappears again. Hey, hey. Hey, nothing. So at this point, he had kept me waiting for him for two to three months, I think. Actually, I, I got the, in the Times in November. So it was it was probably like March, I think. And he kept me waiting for all this time. And there's this thing called Real Screen where companies will make sizzle reels, which is like a, a real like a demo of what the show is. And they play it for like everyone at this film festival, essentially. And Netflix or whoever will bid on things like right there. And if I would have signed a contract earlier, I could have made this sizzle reel, pumped it out and got it ready for the Real Screen thing. And then people could have seen the idea there. But. Because I waited because this guy kept telling me to wait, 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 wait. I'll send it. I'll send it. I'll send it. But he never did because of this. I never got the chance to do that. And I felt like he was just trying to make me wait until it was too late until like pilot season was over. I felt like he was getting me to wait until it was too like late for pitch season so that he had me all to himself. So everyone was all like, oh, yeah, like, no, we're not interested anymore. Like the season's over. You have to wait till next year so that then he could just sign me. That's what I thought he was doing. I was a little paranoid, but that's what I thought he was doing. But it didn't, it made sense because then afterward he stopped talking to me, right? Because then I say, listen, man, there's a company 
where there's a guy who was literally just talking about this idea, the idea that I pitched him at his Christmas party casually. And his bosses heard and they said, we want that idea. And he was like, yes. So he called me at the party, like after some drinks and was like, yo, man, they want it. I just wanted to call you. I'm excited. And I was like, this is this guy is geeked. He's willing to fight for the idea. He's talking about it when he doesn't have to. He doesn't even know much about it or me. And he's pitching the idea around to his bosses. This is the guy that I need to work with, even though the other companies are bigger or have hotter documentaries out or like have better things out or are bigger, you know, like I'm like this company, this guy is willing to fight for my idea. So um, I picked this company and I text the guy, the man, and I say, hey, the man, listen, I am going to sign a contract today. If you want to work with me to make a TV show, tell me now, make it happen. Because this guy has credits on credits on credits for magic TV shows. Like in terms of TV shows produced or made with magicians, famous magicians, A-list magicians that you would know. You know, the David Blaine, the David Copperfields, the Penn and Tellers, all of those people. And this guy might manage one of those people. He produced a lot of that. So I really did want to work with him. And he goes, did you sign the contract? I'm like, not yet, but I think I am going to. And then no reply. I signed the contract. And then uh, he texted me the next day. Did you sign it? I said, yeah, never heard from him again. The guy never texted me again. The big name manager that managed A-list celebrity magician and multiple others never hit me up again because I signed this contract. So that's the story of how I got the in the door, in the door. So essentially what we started doing is filming a sizzle reel and the sizzle reel was uh, essentially just like a demo of what the show was going to be or what it's going to look like. The original idea they had was not good. I told them the idea I had and they misinterpreted it and tried to make it something where they just made me like a black David Blaine. Like a black David Blaine where I just go around doing magic for people being black at the same time. And literally like the lines were like, I'm RJ the Magician. Hmm. Double peace sign. Just give me one of those. And I'm like, no. That is ridiculous. And they ended up cutting together this reel. And I actually had to film it at work. And as you guys know from the previous story, I get out of work of like at like 10 sometimes, you know? So I was working until 10, and then I had to sit and film until like midnight, 1 a.m. And I would just sit and film over and over because they're in California. So it was like, you know, like 10, it was like 10, it was like 9 p.m. for them, so not too bad. But for me, it was really, really late because it was three hours later. So I would sit and film for hours and it was like maybe like a week or two weeks that I would do this so my boss he was like man this guy's working really hard (laughs) getting my money's worth but he didn't know I was secretly filming a whole whole show so I was filming all of this when like after hours and because I knew my boss would try to get in on it get in on it so I was just like secretly doing this and it came back it came back to me like the whole they cut it together after months they cut it together, and I watched it, and I'm like, this is horrendous. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, this is just so bad. And they're like, what do you mean? And I'm just like, there's just so much wrong with it. This is way too expensive. Like, the whole idea for the show is very costly, and you don't know because you don't do magic, but it is. And it's, this is just, like, horrible. And they're like, well, we have to roll with this. We'll send it to them, and then, we'll, and then you know, like, whatever. And I'm like, all right, man. Like, I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, uh so then eventually, like, I was talking to my friends, the ones, I have friends that have had TV shows, I have friends that are famous magicians, uh, not that famous, I have, like, a, a acquaintance that's pr- a pretty famous magician that you guys would all know, and then I have a guy that, like, is relatively, like, famous that has a TV show, 
and I was like, hey man, so like, I really just hate this, this reel, this video. What do I do? And he's like, man, you know, like in the film industry, like that's not really how it works. It's your first show. You're the talent, you know, you, you don't really get to pick the direction. And I'm like, man, that's dumb. They called me. Everyone called me. I'm like, I got to pick from six different like production award winning production companies. I got to pick. I have all the stories for this. I have all the information for this. I'm one of the top writers about this. I'm one of the top people that knows about this subject in the world, which I am. This is true. Also, Houdini. Same thing with Houdini. Uh, I worked at the Houdini Museum. I'm one of the best Houdini experts in the world. Like, it's there's not a lot, you know, and I am one of them because I was the director of the Houdini Museum. Um, so I'm also from Wisconsin, from this town, and I worked at multiple museums. So, yeah, and I'm a writer, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm like, I'm one of the, I'm like, they called me. I should choose that direction for this. I should choose it. So I refilmed the sizzle by myself. I edited it myself on my cell phone and I added in like their logo at the end. I sent it to them. I said, this is what the show should look like. And they were like, we like it, but it just doesn't have enough snazz or pop. And it also just looks a little bit like you made it. And it looked really, really good guys. I was very proud, but, um, I sent it to all my friends. I was like, what do you think? And they're all like, we love this. And I was like, okay, good. But you're just saying that because you're my friends. They were right. It didn't have enough snazzle or pop, snazz or pop. So they were like, but I think you're right. Um, we should probably change the direction of it. Fast forward a little bit. George Floyd dies. Everyone is talking about black content, black creators telling black stories. This is our time. This is a time. This is the new era. This is a new a new time. I see all this and I, I and the original idea was to make me a black David Blaine, right? A black David Copperfield, the black whatever you want to say, a black just a black magician that does black magician stuff. I texted them and I said, listen, this is the time right now. This idea has been kind of shelved. You guys haven't really listened. I'm like, I'm trying to tell an authentic black story. And the fact the blacker this is and the better I make this and the more original this is, the more I get to write and say, the more that this is going to appeal to someone. Because right now is the time to look for black stories. And if the show like this is going to get picked up by someone with no name, no credentials like me, like I've, you know, like I've given like a TED talk. I made the New York Times, you know, I've been on Complex, but that's not like. That's not enough for people to know my name outside of, like, my 200 Facebook fans. You know what I mean? So I'm like, if someone without a name is going to come and walk on Netflix or walk on MTV or BET or uh, USA or TNT, all these networks we're pitching to, if someone's just going to come and walk on and they're going to be black and new, it's going to be me. It's going to be now. And this is the time. So we should really push this now with my idea. And they were like, you're right. So we reformatted everything and they're like, we need better show idea episode ideas. So I called every single friend that I have because I have all my friends in my episodes and on every episode is a different friend featuring a different black magician, an amazing black magician. I called each one of them. I said, if we could do anything, if we had an unlimited budget, what would we do? And I got six amazing episodes, incredible episodes, six episodes that all have a point that are amazing, that are that are that are that are just gonna make an amazing show and i wrote them all down in detail like six pages of like of emails and i sent it and i was like 
crossing my fingers because they didn't like my sizzle reel. They didn't like my video I cut together. They didn't like my original ideas. So I'm like, they're not going to like this. And I crossed my fingers because this I, sh this had some crazy ideas in it. This like whole thing, this whole show had like white face in it. It had tricking people into like thinking. It's just like, it's amazing how much this like has in it. And I sent it across my fingers and they called me back and they were like, we love it. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, don't see anything wrong with this really. And I'm like, wow. So um we made this and you know um they had like a few a few shows that i've heard about or seen um this agency i'm working with so like this this production company so i'm like you know they have a few connections i mainly picked them because the guy had so much gusto had so much passion for it that i'm like he's gonna like i have a lot of passion for everything i do and that's how i am where i am so i'm like if this guy is like me in the netflix in the netflix area and he and he like really researches how to do stuff like he can be like, you know, my man, you know, like my young manager that we like make this journey together with, you know. So that's why I picked them. Dude ended up getting uh, laid off from Corona anyway. So I started working with his boss it ended up being a lot better because his boss actually listened to me and everyone like started listening to my ideas. And they list this called up all the agencies, you know, like all the companies, like they like got us in the room, which is how, you know, you got a good production company, because if you are looking to get into Netflix or whatever, like theoretically, it shouldn't be that much work. They shouldn't be, you know, researching it for months, trying to get you in there. They should be able to make a call and be like, Hey, Netflix, we have a show. Let's meet because they should have pre-established relationships with Netflix. And that's all it takes. So they just called up all these people and also the show idea is bomb. It's a bomb show idea that's very relevant to the time. So that also helps. So wait, they called them all up. They all replied within like a day. And they're like, let's set meetings as early as tomorrow. And I had a meeting set as early as tomorrow with a big with a big like TV company. And that was how I got in. That was how I got in. That was my journey. It was a long journey. But as you guys know, the steps were there. The steps were very clear along the way. The steps were very apparent what I was supposed to do. I've always felt like there's this big Sean song called Stick to the Plan where the whole song is go stick to the plan, bitch, quit plan, stick to the plan. <laughs> and when when I hear the song, it's just I listen to that whenever I don't know what to do, because whenever I don't know what to do, it's like stick to the plan. The plan was to come to New York and take over New York. That was always the goal. That was always the plan. I don't know why I just always wanted to take over New York. <laughs> I wanted to prove that I, I could do it. Some kid from nowhere can just come to New York out of nowhere and make a name for himself quickly because he's smart and because he's talented, you know? So I've always just been like, I'm just going to move here with no money. I'm going to get lucky. I moved here. I got lucky. I got the one job in the world that would get me in the New York times in two months. And that was something I was completely prepared for. Then, you know, so then, when the show came, something I wasn't necessarily prepared for, it was stick to the plan. What do you want to do? Take over New York. What do you want to do? Pay off your loans. What do you want to do? Get a nicer place. You know, if I got this deal, you know, I was smart enough to call the guy that this is why I told you the story. I was smart enough to call the guy that wanted me to be in a show about uh, Vegas, where he said, like, we're going to follow around the new guy in Vegas. And I said, hey, man, I have this show. I want to I want to keep creative control because one of my friends told me that since it's your first show, you won't have any control. I want creative control. What do I do? And he says, ask for an executive producer credit. So I told when I sent me my one year contract, I said, this is great, but I want an executive producer credit so that 
uh, if the company allows. So if we pitch it to somebody like Hulu and they're like, yeah, you can do it. I want Hulu to be like, yeah, and it can be an executive producer. I want my name on this and I want to choose the direction this goes in because I think it's so important to control how this story is being told. And they took it back went with their legal team and put in a clause that said that I could be executive producer if it allows. And that was um, super important to me. And that's like a little victory. But um, yeah, so we sent off, we had all these meetings. We sent off to um, to all the companies. We sent all the information and we should hear back hopefully within the next month. And like I said, it's always important to have shit like fucking cooking, right? So uh, I have all these different black magicians featured, my different friends, right? And one of them is really cool. He's a guy that robbed a bank with nothing but a piece of paper. That's a magician. Went to jail for a few years. I'm not going to tell you his name um, because I'm going to keep this for the show. But um, I recently got a call from the New York Times. And they were like, we need uh, stories about magicians that have been to jail. Um, And we saw you're the director of the Houdini Museum. We wanted to see if you knew anybody. And I'm like, this is the perfect opportunity for me to get a little bit of press for my guy that's in my show because he's in all the information that we sent to Netflix and everything. So if I could get his story in the New York Times and send it to them and be like, yo, look, not only can I tell a story because I'm a publicist, I know magic, I'm funny, I have a podcast, not only can I tell a story, but I can also get my story's attention. This is one of the stories. Open up your package to page three. This story is in the New York Times today, and it's also in your package, and no one knew about that last week. Like, I'm, that's what I'm trying to do. So they call me like, do you know anyone? And I'm like, I know this guy who went to jail robbing banks with only a piece of paper. They're like, that sounds incredible. Can I have his phone number? I called the guy up. He's never met me before. He doesn't even know he's in this show, but I think he's a, a really cool. I've heard about him. I, I We have mutual friends. I called him up. I explained it to him. He goes, yes that would be great I'd love to be in the show I'm like if you would like to be in the show do me a small favor talk to this reporter she wants to hear your story he goes that sounds amazing and I'm like if you could just mention that we're doing the show when you talk to her that would really help me out and then maybe that'll get in the article maybe Netflix will see it maybe that'll call out to them maybe they'll give me a juicy offer maybe not probably not but yeah this is a step of producing seeing how uh, shit's directed seeing this stuff and if this show goes well, I have another idea for another show that would follow it as a second season. And then we could figure out a third season. And then hopefully I'd be I'd be able to help. I met the team that produces all the magic for Netflix. So Magic for Humans, uh, Death by Magic, which is a show on Netflix. Uh, they also do The Floor is Lava. The whole the team did um, uh, Blind, Blind, Love is Blind. I think that's what it's called. Yeah, Love is Blind. So I met that team. And now I've met all these executives at all these different companies. So now I have these connections, which is really cool. Um, and it just it leaves the door open. Yeah, it leaves the door open for a lot of opportunity. And I hope you guys were able to learn something. Um, this is literally my exact process for how it happened. How it can happen for you is different. As you guys know, press is great advertising. Get in something. Talk about what you want to do. And the right people will come to you. I never mentioned I wanted to do a TV show, but people just like my look and me enough to reach out. But if you can get in your local paper or any paper um, and mention that you have an idea for a TV show, there's something called RSS feed, which is um, where people mention uh, certain subjects. Then um, it goes straight to someone's computer, like a notification. So someone might, someone I think most likely what happened with me at least is someone noticed uh, had probably been looking for either a magician 
a black magician, <laughs> young magician, new magician, or something like that. And when that popped up in the New York Times article, probably alerted the computer, and they were like, yes, finally, like we found one. Because a lot of these people were actually looking for a young black magician to work with, fun fact. So if you mention, like, I am working for, sh- I'm working on a show I want to pitch to Netflix, Netflix will get that notification. They might reach out to you, or um, uh, a producer might get that notification to reach out for you to you. So press is good learn how to get press learn how to write a press release let me know if you guys want to learn how to write one and i'll put it in a podcast not exactly what this is about but i mean i guess we can do it i also lecture on this at like colleges and i lecture on this at like conventions and for magicians and podcasts and stuff like that so this is kind of the more serious side but it's uh this this i hope this helped you because this is the uh, this is the, the formula i guess get press tell people what you want to do do something cool tell people what you want to do get the press for it and wait now you might be like RJ you promised us a Hamilton-esque episode so I'm coming back in I already recorded it but I wanted to tell you guys one last thing now I decided to tell these two things together because it the whole story that I'm trying to do I'm going to give you guys a tidbit for sticking around till the end the basis of my show is and has always been the history of black magicians which I am um, which I mentioned earlier I'm an expert on right so it's the idea that you had these magicians of the past that were so amazing, more amazing than Houdini, that never got their shine simply because it wasn't cool to tell black stories. And did they dream in their wildest dreams? We have these T-shirts. Black people have these T-shirts that say, I am my ancestor's wildest dream. Did they in their wildest dream performing for only black people performing um, in the 1800s and the 1900s as former slaves performing in Europe because they couldn't perform in America? Did they in their wildest dreams imagine that some boy some boy from Wisconsin would be coming out to tell their story, to tell their story, the idea of legacy, right? The idea of legacy. So I'll tell you uh, when this popped back up again and why I felt like I had to connect these two things. About a week before Hamilton, as we will use the timeline, the timeline when I'll be uh, related to Hamilton, a week before Hamilton, I got a call from this guy named Rory Rennick. And when I first started out doing magic, um, I needed to find some black magicians for a school project I was working on. I think I told you guys I had to write an op-ed. Everyone wrote their op-eds about like mental health, social justice. And it's like, those are great. But like what we just talked about in my class was the two things I love talking about in the podcast, which are Enthymeme and which are, which is Kairos. So Enthymeme is saying something implicitly without saying it out loud. So like, you know, when your mom's like, oh, your room's not clean. She's not saying go clean your room, but she is go saying go clean your room, you know, and um, Kairos is timing. So I was saying, how could I use Kairos, which we just learned about timing, writing something at the right time is more likely to change people's opinions and minds. And how could I use uh, something like Enthymeme, which is saying something without saying something. So I'm like, let me write about the history of these amazing black magicians and say, essentially, why don't we know this history? Like, don't say like, white people are evil. You erased our history. You're the reason why these magicians aren't famous. But just say, why don't we know this history? And I wrote that article, and uh, that's like the f- the first one that I wrote. But to get uh, information for that article, it's really hard to find information on black magicians. So I had to call this guy, and this guy was like, well, if you don't know this guy, call this guy. And this guy was like, if you don't know this guy, call this guy. And this guy was like, if you don't know this guy, you need to call Rory Rennick. 
So Rory is one of the foremost experts on black magic history in the world. I would say the the foremost. He's written uh, numerous books, and he currently does a play where he acts as the reincarnation of a famous black magician, and does a whole like stage play about it. And he's very respectable, and he's like uh, kind of like an old uncle, uh, you know, like your crazy old uncle. That's kind of what he's like. He's like really cool dude. And I ended up talking to him. And we became kind of like friends. Like, he gave me a lot of great advice, told me where to start for a lot of my research. And we've been Facebook friends for the last two years. And I gave him a call the other day, just like out of the blue. And I was like, yo, it's me. And he's like, I was just thinking about you today to my wife. And I said, I wonder what RJ's up to. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. And he's like, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the idea of legacy and what's going to happen when I pass and where all these things are going to go because I have the world's largest collection of African-American playing cards. I have all the, this memorabilia and all this, all these posters and things like that. I've been wondering about where it's going to go, and I'm just sitting there like, yeah, what is he going to say? Oh, my gosh. And he didn't say, like, I want to give these all to you when I pass on because I need someone to give them to that appreciates black magic history. He didn't say that per se, but he kind of implied that. And he just gave me this kind of this long speech about what legacy is. And I'm like, well, I think it's planting trees in a garden you never get to see. And he's like, well, there might be some more to it. And, you know, you know I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Hamilton does have all the answers. So he, he just told me that this idea of legacy has been on his mind, been weighing him down, and that he's been thinking about who's going to pass on these stories. And he's like, and you, you are a young guy that's out here that I see passing on these stories. And I'm just really grateful for that. And this this kind of all wrapped up this idea of legacy 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 what is it it's it's passing on stories that that we have to tell for other people and the stories that i have to pass on i believe are these stories of these black magicians which is why this this show is getting a lot of traction and which is why it's getting noticed early and which is why it only took a week to schedule these meetings like less than a week and which is why like everyone wants to hear it which is really cool so Yes. The last thing I'll tell you very quickly is uh, I along the way get confirmations that I'm doing things correctly. So like, you know, like when I like got my first like check for the Houdini Museum director job, I had fifty dollars in the bank. I had enough money for one more day and then I wouldn't have had any more money, you know, or like uh, I didn't like get uh, I got fired from my job in New York so I could take the job in China, because like if I would have taken the job in New York, I would have signed my contract six months early and I wouldn't have known about China. So every once in a while, I get a confirmation that something is like working in my life. Right. So I essentially had a project where I had to look up. I believe I may have mentioned this before, but I had to look up the Oshkosh uh, 64. I think the Oshkosh, or excuse me, the Oshkosh 94, which it was in 1968 when UW Oshkosh, the college I went to, expelled a bunch of black students for wanting equal rights, shipped them off in U-Haul vans into prison, and they were banned from the school for 30 years. So that's essentially what happened, right? So I got to do a project on them, and I got to pick any one of them that I wanted to and read their writings, because they have it all documented in an archive, like all their writings in the library. So I saw one that said Henry Brown. And I was like, that's weird. Like Henry Box Brown, the famous black magician that I've been writing about for the last five years. So I looked at Henry Box Brown's uh, folder or Henry Brown's folder. Excuse me. His name was Henry Brown Jr. And he talks about how he used to be a magician around Milwaukee, Wisconsin, like around where I grew up. He used to be a magician and go around doing magic tricks. And on the weekends, he would do little magic shows for the kids. And then he mentioned that his 
he didn't know this for sure, but he thinks he got his name from a famous slave named Henry Brown who escaped from freedom in a box. He didn't even know that he later became a magician and traveled around the world. He had no idea, but this Henry Brown, this Henry Brown thought he was a relative of Henry Box Brown. Now, I've talked to Rory. I said, is this possible? He said, it's possible. Is it true? I don't think so. But the fact that this guy even knew this famous slave when no one I know has even heard of him and the fact that he had the same name and the fact that he mentioned this guy that shipped himself from Virginia to Philadelphia. This was on the East Coast. He mentioned he used to do magic tricks. He was a black man in the 19 fucking 60s. And, and when you see something like that, it just confirms like I'm on the right track. This is the right track. You know what I mean? Because like, what are the odds? What are the odds? So. That's my idea of legacy. I inserted this podcast like in the middle. I'll let past me finish up, but I'm glad you guys listened. And uh, make sure to follow. Make sure to rate. Please rate the podcast. Let's get it to 20. If we get it, to, if we get it to 20, I might tell the Christmas party sex sex. No, the Christmas sex party. Yeah, there it is. The Christmas Day sex party story of 2019. If if I get to 20 uh, ratings, <clears throat> and um, hopefully it'll come and. Well, I'll let you guys know if I get picked and if I get a juicy check and if I get a juicy check, I'm moving out of this apartment and I'm trying to get some good karma points. So I'm trying to, you know, I'm talking about it because I really want to talk about it, but I'm telling you guys how I did it to get those opposite karma points so that you can also learn because, you know, if I talk about this too much, I feel like I'll just like get bad karma. So uh, (laughs) I'm trying to balance it out. So anyway. Thanks for listening to the I Hate Everyone podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Follow me at RJ the Magic Can on Instagram. Make sure to rate this if you liked it and tell me if this was helpful to you. Long podcast, I know, but hey, sometimes, yeah, you got to do it. Anyway, this is RJ the Magician signing out. The hero of Harlem, the skinny Luke Cage. Have a nice day. I hate my yearbook photo. I hate my passport. I hate my...